Welcome to Epiphany Fellowships Podcast. My name is Dr. Eric Mason, lead pastor and founder of Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. Our desire is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. God bless you as you listen and consider subscribing so that you can tune in every week to check out new messages. God bless you and take care. Amen and amen. Y'all good to be in the house? Glad to be in the house of the Lord this afternoon. I heard a couple claps, but that was a little weak, if I'm honest. Y'all glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Amen, amen. Uh, Just a quick note before we jump into our time today. Uh, Keep uh, Dr. Mason lifted. He's down with our daughter church, one of our daughter churches, Epiphany Wilmington. They are launching today. And so he he is down there supporting and and celebrating uh, with them. Uh, And then keep Pastor Larry lifted as well. He had to uh, uh, he was called to cover for another church in the city who had an emergency this week. So uh, he had some late, some late sermon preparation he had to do to go uh, be of service. So just keep him lifted as he brings the word uh, today as well. Uh, fellas, or not fellas, let me not start with the fellas. Ladies, I heard y'all had a great time at the retreat last week. Amen. Amen. I would be jealous, but brothers, we going on a retreat in June. Amen, somebody. Yeah, yeah, I know y'all see my look. Y'all see my new manity shirt? Y'all see that y'all like this, don't you? Yeah. Brothers, we got a retreat coming up June 22nd through the 24th. We're going to give you more information about it. The first 20 guys to register will get a free shirt. Amen. We got three colors too. Uh, But let me clarify because I got to be specific with y'all. You got to register with a deposit. Amen, somebody. Amen. Amen. I'll put you down when I see your money, Brother Paul. Amen. Amen. Stand, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. As we continue on in our family series. First Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. If you're there, say amen. 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 If you're not there, look up at the screen. <laughs> amen. Y'all, y'all know how I like to do I like to be a little crazy. We're going to do odds and evens. Amen. So I'm going to be even. Y'all going to be odds. Y'all going to pay attention? All right. I'm going to do evens. Y'all going to do what? We're going to read the last verse together. All right. Here's the word of the Lord. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord. And plunge it into uh, the container, the kettle, the cauldron, or the cooking pot. And the priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the cattle was burned, the priest's servant would 
If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now, and if you don't, I'll take it by force. Samuel served in the Lord's presence. This mere boy was dressed in the linen ephod. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife. May the Lord give you children by this woman in place of the one she has given to the Lord. And then they would go home. Now Eli was very old, and he heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news I hear the Lord's people spreading is not good. Altogether, by contrast, the Lord Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with the people. If I could tag a text for our time uh, this afternoon, it would simply be this. The problem with passive parenting. The problem with passive parenting. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and thankful for your word, that your word is true, that it is good, that you teach us objectively how to learn from you and learn from the experiences of those who have come before us so that we might walk in wisdom. Help us to model our father Abraham when you told him to walk righteously before you so that we might walk righteously before you as well and it might be counted to us as righteousness not because of anything that we done, have done but because the righteousness with which we walk has been imputed to us because of the death of Jesus Christ. There is much for us to learn here today, God, and I am the first of many with much to learn. But we pray that you would speak to us this day, encourage our hearts, challenge us, God, from your word, that we might leave here never the same again. Father, we do pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. 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 You may be seated. How many of you have ever had a hoopty in your life? You know, having a having a hoopty, having a hoopty as your first car should be a universal experience. Right? Because if, if you start driving and your first car ain't a hoopty, I'ma be honest with you, I'm judging you. Like we we look down on you, right? Because there there's like a rite of passage that you just have not crossed. When your car, your first car is not a hoopty. But listen, even if you don't have a hoopty, I can probably say this with confidence that most of us miss the regular maintenances that are scheduled for our cars. Amen. amen. I, that was a loud amen. amen. We don't never take our car into the mechanic till something break. Right? Every once in a while, every once in a while, 
You'll get in your car and you'll start driving and you'll realize that in order for you to drive straight, you got to turn the wheel either a little bit too far to the left or a little bit too far to the right. And what that means is that, that you need a wheel alignment. Right? You need, you need a wheel alignment. I see some of y'all pushing people out there right now because you done driven in their cars and like, what is going on? Right? Now, it's interesting that wheel, wheel alignments, I, I, you know, I, I've mentioned this before. My dad was a mechanic, but I never paid attention to anything he said about cars uh, until it was too late. And so, you know, I had to go back and look, man, what causes your car to need a wheel alignment? And so as I was looking, I found out that if you hit potholes frequently, you need a wheel, you're, you're going to end up needing a wheel alignment. Now, I know many of us from Philly can attest to this being true, because I, I haven't driven down one street yet in Philly that don't got a pothole. <laughs> and I hate it when it's nighttime and you can't see them. And, ah. Not only that, if you hit the curb too hard, it can cause, you know, the need for a wheel alignment. Now, this is probably for my suburban folk who struggle with parallel parking oftentimes. <laughs> no shade, no, a little bit of shade, but. But what happens is when your tires get excessive wear and tear, the car ends up overcompensating on whatever side of the tire is underinflated, and it causes the car to end up shifting more weight to that side which causes the car to not function as it properly should. Now, the truth of the matter is that you can keep driving straight as long as you keep your hand on the wheel, right? Many of us have done that for a long time because we ain't had money to go get a wheel alignment, right? But the minute we take our hands off the wheel, what happens? We begin to veer either to the right or to the left. See, what, what happens when we disengage from parenting our children is we run the risk of persisting in the practice of passive parenting, leaving our kids vulnerable to all types of foolishness because you know if you have children, the Bible has already told you that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. They only know how to do foolish things. So when you're when it's time for you to parent, you have to come in with the expectation that parenting is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you a whole lot of your time. It's going to cost you a whole lot of your money. And it's going to cost you a whole lot of your last nerve. As we come to, uh, as we come to this passage... It's interesting that we're, we're being introduced in these first couple of chapters to two different families. Being introduced to uh, the priest Eli and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and we're being introduced to the young boy Samuel and his birth and his miraculous birth and how God places his hand on his mother Hannah and brings him into the world. But in order for us to fully understand the context of what's happening here in chapter 2, we've got to look back at the book of Judges to understand that this was a, a period in time where the priests were ruling that Samuel was born into, where the Bible says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges chapter 21 verses 25 says that they did this so much so that every man lived by their own individual moral code. 
But this was not indicative of just the end of the book of Judges. This was indicative of the entire span of history where after Israel had entered into the land and begun living as the Lord had prescribed. See, before they got into the land, the Lord had to kill off an entire generation because they refused to trust God and they were completely disobedient. So God allowed a new generation to be raised up. They went into the land. They conquered all their enemies. Joshua was their leader. And after he dies, wouldn't you know it that another generation uh, rose up and the Bible says that they did not know the Lord? And the characterization of their history was marked by the phrase, and they did what was right in their own eyes. And so now we have this, these families who are operating, this family of Eli and his sons, who are operating in this environment, this boy, Samuel, who was born in this environment. And this brings me to my first of three points this afternoon. Simply this, the first point, passive parenting promotes spiritual decay. Look with me at verse 12. It says this. It says, Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or they did not know the Lord. Now, what's, what's interesting about the Bible calling these two priests wicked men is that over in chapter 1, verse 3, it introduces Eli and his two sons and it says that they were priests of the Lord. Can you imagine being called priests of the Lord, being established in a position, being given uh, roles to do and things to do on his behalf for his glory, and yet you are categorized as a wicked person? They weren't just anybody's priests. They were Yahweh's priests. They were the God of Israel's priests. Yet the first thing that we know in detail about their lives is that they are wicked men. Not only are they wicked men, but it says that they don't know the Lord. For the life of me, I can't understand how you can be close to religious things, how you can know religious information, and yet still not know the Lord. Christians, we need to be careful today of being able to say that we have checked off the boxes of coming to church each and every Sunday. That we get up on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and do our little devotionals. That we have Christian radio on in our cars. That we have some Christian books that we go to every so often. There are some of us, maybe even in here, who do a lot of religious things but do not know the Lord. They were wicked men and they didn't know the Lord. But not, not only did they not know the Lord, it says that they did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people and it tells us why when anyone offered a sacrifice the priest servant would come with a three-pronged fork stick it into the, the the cooking pot and pull out whatever type of meat was brought up from the pot now it's interesting if you go over to leviticus chapter 7 that there was a particular standard expectation of how they were supposed to operate as priests so there were only certain parts of the sacrifice that they were allowed to take for themselves after the people had offered their sacrifice of worship, right? And so here we have the priests who say, I don't care what God has commanded for us to do. Whatever comes up on my fork, that's what I'm eating. So whereas the priests were only supposed to eat of the shoulder and of the breast, if they wanted a thigh, they was taking a thigh. If they wanted a wing, they was taking a wing. If they wanted some feet, no, they didn't do pig's feet because that was unclean. But if they wanted some other part of the animal, 
they were eating that. But listen, not only that, look with me. It says that they treated all of the Israelites who came there to Shiloh this way. It's interesting that, you know, if, if we could say anything about these two wicked men, it's that at least they're consistently wicked. At least they treat everybody wickedly. Like they're not a respecter of person. Like even the, the people that they might have thought fondly of, they were still wicked towards because that's just what they did. And look what it says. Even before, verse 15, even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. Now what's interesting about this is not only were Hophni and Phinehas stealing from the people who were coming to worship, they were also stealing from the Lord because the fat portion was reserved only for the Lord. Nobody, not the priest, nobody was supposed to get the fat portion from the Lord. God was so concerned with them cooking the fat portion first for him so he could smell the pleasing aroma of the fat. See, that's how I know God likes bacon. You know? That, that's, you know, when, if God wanted a burger, he would get the 80-20, not the 85-15. Because when you put it on the grill, it sizzles a little bit, and the, the fat caramelizes and, and marbles. See, so y'all don't know what I'm talking about. That's all right. Wait till we get the glory. We're going to be barbecuing. But the, the, the fat portion was reserved for the Lord, so much so that he said if anybody was to take of the fat portion, they should be cut off from their people forever. He said, to take of what belongs to God means immediate and eternal removal from the people of God. You can't even be in the covenant community of God's people if you have the audacity to not respect what belongs to God. Not only were they stealing from those who had come to worship, but they were stealing from God himself. And then if the worshipers had the audacity to call out the priest and say, listen, let's do this the right way. Listen, let's, let me at least burn the fat off first and then you can take what you want. They would say, nah, give it to me now. Run your pockets. That's literally what they were saying. Give me what, give me what I want now or you're going to see what happens. Could you imagine the men of God not only standing in the way of God's people, leaving them unable to worship properly, but threatening their worship for their own selfish gains? I know we don't have that problem here in the church. The characterization that we get as we watch even just this little bit of, Eli, uh, of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, of their lives, we see that they were wicked men who did not know the Lord. They, they have no concern for God's off, his sacrifices and how he's called the people to worship him through offerings. And, and, and not only that, but they don't care about God himself because they choose to just burn the, or, or take the fat off of the offerings for themselves. What's characterized here? Parents, I think it's something that we need to make sure that we're mindful of. That we're careful not to prioritize biblical information 
over heart transformation. They, they had all the right information, but they didn't have the right heart. Oftentimes as parents, we're so concerned at making sure that our kids get it right that it leaves us unconcerned about whether or not they've actually changed. We're so concerned with conformity of obedience when they're in our presence that we're not even really sure if we can trust them when we can't see them. But that's because we only want them to do what we want them to do so that we don't feel offended and we're less concerned about whether or not they're going to do something that offends God. As a parent, that's something you got to be careful of. Are you more offended that your child offended you or are you more offended that your child offended the Lord? See, that changes how you parent. When, when you realize that your child's offense to you is, is a greater assault against the character of God, then your concern is more towards their heart disposition and how they relate to their God and not necessarily about how they obey you. Because if they obey you, I mean, if they obey God, they will in turn obey you. Their obedience to God is obedience to you. But their obedience to you doesn't mean it's obedience says, verse 17, so the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because the men treated the Lord's offering with contempt. That word contempt means to, to treat disrespectfully or to, to disregard. Essentially, priestly abuse was giving religion a bad name in Israel. I know we don't have pastors today that abuse the people of God and give Christianity a bad name. I know that we don't have anybody in here who's been hurt by the church because leaders refuse to go unchecked with their fleshly passionate ambitions and don't care who they hurt in the meantime. I know that's not a problem in church. I know we don't have church folk that are willing to sit underneath this type of mockery of the name of God and act like it should just be forgiven. I know we don't have these types of issues in the church. I know the world doesn't look at the church and call us hypocrites because of the type of the leaders that we follow. For the life of me, I can't understand how you can regularly become before the Lord to serve the Lord and not be in fear of his holiness. I don't understand it. I, I know like if, if, you know, like when you're in the presence of somebody great, it should change your behavior. Listen, if Obama invited me to his house, I can't wear this. Like, I got to go put my best suit on or go buy a new suit, right, and, and go to his house. And if my mama happens to be with me, she's going to tell me, you better not act a fool and embarrass me while we out here because I'm going to embarrass you when we get home. When you're in the presence of greatness, it changes your behavior. So how come when we get in the, before the presence of God, it doesn't change us? If we can be real honest today, there are many of us who show up week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Bible study after Bible study, and we look real churchy when we're around church people. But when we get around the world, 
they can't tell the difference. I like what Pastor Lane, Eddie Lane says in his book on, on parenting. He says, a, a parent who chooses to be involved or uninvolved in the lives of his children or who is negatively involved will likely find themselves trying to manage a family that is dysfunctional. Verse 19 says, or not verse 19, I'm sorry, verse, um, verse 21 says, the end of verse 21 says, the boy Samuel, though, grew up in the presence of the Lord. Verse 18 says that Samuel served in the Lord's presence. It's interesting that immediately we have this contrast of the character of Eli's sons and the character of Samuel, where they are wicked men stealing from the Lord and his people. You have Samuel, the boy who is faithfully serving the Lord. Now what's interesting is that even though the Bible says up in verse 12 that Eli's sons did not know the Lord, it says the very same thing about Samuel over in chapter 3. And yet for some reason the hand of God was on Samuel in a way where he was pleased with Samuel serving him. Parents, one of the things that we have to be mindful of so that we don't cause spiritual decay or promote spiritual decay is you can't allow the church to teach your kids more about God than you do. Too many of us are depending on the church and mad at the church because our children aren't walking with the, with the Lord and we do absolutely nothing with them at home. And again, this goes back to just trying to give them information. Information. Reciting creeds. Bible history. And there's been no heart transformation. You don't even really know them. How much time are you spending reading the Bible with your children at home? How much time do you spend praying with them? It's interesting we find here in this contrast, we see the type of family that Samuel comes from. Imagine Samuel and his mother Hannah. This was the woman who was barren and knew that she was barren as a result of the Lord's hand not being on her. And yet year after year, she made her way to Shiloh to worship with her family despite the taunts of her husband's other wife. And she believed God that he would give her a son. So much so that she stood at the altar and cried and wept so hard that the priest thought that she had been drinking. She did this year after year until the Lord blessed her and gave her a son. And guess what she did? She didn't make no empty promise to God. She actually followed through on what she said she would do. The minute she had a son, she weaned him, took him back to the temple and said, Here, Lord, he's yours. The reason that I know you answered my prayer was not for me, but was for you. So imagine this boy Samuel, even though he's growing up in all of this chaos and dysfunction, seeing his mother year after year make her way to the temple to worship God and give thanks to God to her son, for her son that now has health, life, and strength. And every year she brings him a little gift of a coat, and every year she reminds him and affirms him, God answered my prayers when I prayed for you. God is going to use you and do incredible, mighty things in his name with you. Be faithful, Samuel, and trust the Lord. Trust the promises of God. Can you imagine year after year seeing your mama show up and even though you can't go home with her you're encouraged because you see her love for the Lord 
See, a lot of times we talk about Hannah in this context, and we always forget about his father, Elkanah, who started the practice of making sure his entire family got before the Lord each and every year. See, Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 starts off with the introduction of Elkanah and how he made sure that his two wives and all of their kids got to before the Lord so they could offer sacrifices each and every year. See, Elkanah, even though he had some issues, was a dad who said, I'm going to make sure my whole family gets before the Lord. There's a contrast there where Samuel at the very least, sees his parents who are committed to God because they don't let anything stop them from getting before the presence of God. There aren't any excuses in the mouth of Hannah and Elkanah for why they can't make it to sacrifice before the Lord. Why do we have so many excuses for why we can't get before God with our kids? I'm tired. I just got home from work. My kids aren't going to pay attention for that long. We're too busy. Every excuse in the book to keep us from getting before the face of God with our families. Not only does passive parenting promote spiritual decay, passive parenting also permits sexual sin. Look with me at verse 22. It says, now Eli was very old and he heard about, he heard about, he heard about, everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they were sleeping with the women who had served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now the Bible says that Eli was very old and he kept hearing about everything that his sons were doing, which lets us know that this was not a recent event. This type of behavior by his sons had been going on for so long that the Bible could say that he had already known about this. He had been new about what his sons were doing to Israel. But it doesn't say that he did anything about it, only that he kept hearing about it. It says that he didn't do anything, he just kept hearing about it. Now it's interesting, as you read further after the passages we're going to read, is we learn a little bit more detail about Eli, and it's that he's older in age and he's losing his sight. So he doesn't see that well. But we also find out that Eli is massively overweight, which is why his neck gets broken when he falls out of the chair after his sons die. Why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that because areas of dysfunction and lack of self-control in your life show up in all areas of your life. See, see Eli's lack of commitment to God and the stewardship of his body showed up in his parenting. Ouch. Eli kept hearing about what his sons were doing. It says that his sons not only were doing all the stuff with the sacrifices, but they sleeping with all the women in the church. Now, there's two different views here. One view is that these women were possibly uh, Nazarite volunteers who would come and, and worship and offer services uh, at the tabernacle. But the other view here is that what they had instituted was a form of cultic prostitution practices that would have been normal to the surrounding cultures during that time and would have been something that Israel had been engaging in if you go back and read the book of Judges. 
And so they had essentially instituted, instituted prostitution, a prostitution ring that was running out the church as a form of worship. This is what it looks like when men who are supposed to be serving the Lord are left to enjoy their licentious lifestyles unchecked with nobody to challenge them, with nobody to rebuke them, with nobody to call them to repentance. One of the other things we see here is that the role of God-ordained discipline was far from Eli. I know some of us don't like to spank our kids, but listen to what the Bible says. I'm, listen, I'm not going to try to convince you with my words. I'm going to take you to the book. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. I ain't talking about abuse. Let's get that straight. I'm not talking about physical abuse. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. Now, Getting a whooping, yeah, because I didn't get spankings. I got whoopings, right? I either got whoopings or I got beat, right? Spanking is different. That, that's like a little pat, right? But the idea here with Rod, that's just a form of discipline. It's not the only way to discipline, right? Oftentimes, we read a verse like this, and the only way that we discipline is through the rod, Right? When a shepherd was disciplining his sheep, or the word, the, the phrase discipline actually means to correct with the intention of forming proper habits of behavior. You can't hammer something in with a screwdriver. On your tool belt, there are different tools because each thing needs something different to help it do what it's supposed to do. With discipline, there are other aspects. That sometimes a form of discipline is encouragement. Sometimes it's the rod. Sometimes it's teaching moments, being able to instruct, to form the proper habits of behavior. However, in this context, it says whoever spares the rod hates his son. That means you don't, if you refuse to use the rod, you, you don't love your kids. It says, but he who loves him is diligent is diligent, is a, a, a focused initiative to discipline him. But look what, look what, see, that, that's not even my go-to verse. That's not even my go-to verse. My go-to verse is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Because when you parent, you have to parent your children how God parents you. You, you want to you wanna learn good parenting skills? Look and, go look through your Bible and see how God relates to you. That's good parenting skills. But look what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. It says, for the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every son. That's relational language. That means that you belong to him, that you're his. He chastises every son whom he receives. Listen, parents, we, we can't be so detached from our kids that we're unaware of what our kids are watching on TV. That we're unaware of what they're listening to in their music. Like that you just let them watch and listen to whatever you want. 
Listen, I grew up in that home. And you're lying to yourself if you think it's not influencing your children. You can't be unaware of what they're exposed to on social media. I just did a session this weekend on the sexually restored man. The, the average age of first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. And the majority of kids who are exposed are exposed by accident. Parents, you can't be unaware. You can't be aware of what you're unaware of what your, your kids are talking about with their friends. Because you know what happens? They get in a, in a circle and they're trying to figure it all out together. And they don't know what the heck they're talking about. You need to be so engaged with your children that when they hear something, that they, when they see something, going, to you in con going back and forth with you in conversation should be so normal and so natural that they're not afraid to bring it up to you thinking that they're going to get in trouble. We got to have this openness of dialogue where we're ready to teach our kids and not beat them down at every turn, right? Too many of our kids are engaging in explicitly, sexually explicit behavior and parents are either unaware or like Eli, unconcerned. Not only does passive parenting promote spiritual decay, not only does it permit sexual sin, but passive parenting impedes generational health. Look at me at verse 25. Or actually, let me, I'll, I'll read before then, before we get to verse 25. Verse 23, he said to them, for the very first time, why are you doing these things? I've heard about your evil actions from all these people. No, my sons, the news that I hear from the Lord's people spreading, or for the Lord's people spreading is not good. If one person sins against another, God can intercede for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? It's interesting that in this verse, it's almost as if Eli is prophesying the very destruction of himself and his family, and he doesn't even know it. You know, when, 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 when beef breaks out between you and somebody else, God can come in and help squash that. But when God is the person you got beef with... Who's going? It ain't nothing you can do to squash beef with the God who's always righteous and always right. So somewhere in Eli's heart, he knows what you're doing is making you an enemy of God. And at the same time, he's done nothing to stop it. The second part of that verse, verse 25, says this. But they would not listen to their father since the Lord intended to kill them. Now, when I first read that verse, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, God, he just wiped them out. I mean, they deserved it, but God dang God, like, he, he just wiped them out. And then I went back and I read the verse again and it clicked. And in that verse, you know what I saw? I saw the mercy of a gracious God. Because when you read in this text, where the Bible says that God intended to kill them, guess what that means? That he had not killed them yet. That these men had been engaged 
in idolatry and sexual immorality for so long, going so unchecked, and God spared them this long to give them opportunities to repent is absolutely incredible. And I'll tell you why it's incredible. It's incredible because there were two men named Nadab and Abihu who put strange fire on the altar and God struck them down immediately. After this passage, the ark gets put, the ark gets captive uh, by the Philistines. The Philistines experience a lot of death in their camp. They send it back to Israel. There were 70 people who looked inside the ark like they were not supposed to, and God struck them down immediately. Even further after that, there's a guy named Uzzah who's walking with the Ark of the Covenant as they're transporting it. The cattle slips and the Ark begins to fall. He reaches out his hand to steady it and the Lord strikes him down because he was not supposed to touch it. Can you imagine engaging in this type of sin for so long and God spares you? I had to fall down on my floor and worship this morning thinking of all the ways that I had disrespected God, all the ways that I had been unfaithful to the Lord, all the ways that I deserved for him to take me out immediately. And God was so gracious. Why he would keep from taking me out is incredible. But I serve an incredible God. Verse 26, it says, by contrast, again, that contrast where the author here is pitting the Samuel and what's happening in Samuel's life and what God is doing with Samuel with, with Eli and his sons. It says, by contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Very reminiscent of what Luke says about Jesus in chapter 2, verse 52, where it says that he grew in stature and gained favor with God and with man. But listen, as a result of Eli's unfaithfulness, to take his role as a parent seriously, he jeopardized his entire family. Because he didn't take his role as a parent seriously, God not only killed him, but killed his two sons and one of his son's wife and left the rest of the family and future generations to live in poverty because he failed to engage their sin, because he failed to engage their heart transformation, because he failed to point them back to the Lord. It's, it's no wonder that God rejected the priesthood of Eli and his sons. Pastor Lane writes in that book that I referenced earlier, the man of God, Eli, the man of God, chose to abdicate, abdicate his responsibility as a father and failed to confront his sons about their evil doings. And his failure caught the attention of God and brought his whole house under judgment. Man, can, you, can you imagine that you're sinning so bad that you catch the attention of God? I, I couldn't imagine catching God's attention in such a way where he's ready to judge. After this passage, God begins reviewing Eli's ancestors with him and, and how he brought them to be his priests over Israel. 
and he sends an unmanned named, uh, unman named, just called the man of God, to Israel to announce that his priesthood would end because it had violated the conditions of its ongoing existence. Now what's crazy is the Lord did not terminate the office of priest altogether because he says he would raise up a faithful priest and an anointed one to be in their place. God doesn't need you to fulfill his plan. He, he said, okay, you don't, you don't want to do things my way? I'm going to move you out the way to get done what I want to get done. I, I, you don't want to parent your kids? That's fine. I'm going to move you out the way. And as, as a result, I may have to move them out the way because they might be standing in somebody else's way from them getting to me. Don't get to the place, parent, where God is moving you and your family out the way because you're impeding other people's ability to get to him. God says he's going to raise up, raise up this faithful priest and this anointed one, this faithful priest and this anointed one, this faithful priest who empathizes with our weaknesses, this faithful priest who mediates for you even right now before the Father, this faithful priest who he himself laid his life down to be sacrificed on your behalf, this faithful priest whose sacrifice was the last one that God would ever need to appease his wrath, this faithful priest who mediates between God and man, and he's also the anointed one, the anointed one because he will sit on God's throne forever and forever. He's the anointed one because his reign and his rule is full of perfect justice, perfect mercy, and perfect peace. He's the anointed one because when he returns, he will establish his kingdom that no man can stop. He is the anointed one and the faithful priest, and his name is Jesus. And so even though Eli and his sons disobeyed God and contended against God, God did not remove the, 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 the mission of what he wanted to do through the priests on behalf of the people, he just removed them. And he put in their place the one who would always satisfy him, who would always please him, and would ultimately accomplish the very mission of why he came, Jesus the Christ. Listen, before I go, I just want to share a couple things with you, a couple of practical instructions from Deuteronomy chapter 6, if I might, beginning at verse 5. It writes this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Say your heart. Listen, when we teach our kids, we have to teach them convincingly. Very simply put, you can't give your kids something that you yourself have not received. So when he says these words that I'm giving you today must be in your heart, that means that in order for you to parent the way God has designed you to parent, then you need to know him. You need to be convinced that Jesus Christ is actually God and you have to live a life of submission to him. That's why he says, love the Lord your God with all your might, your soul, your strength. Everything in you should be trying to get before the presence of God all the time. 
teach your kids convincingly. Not only that, but I want you to teach your kids consistently. Verse 7 says, repeat them to your children. He, repeat means the things that he's teaching you or he's giving us today. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. All he's saying here is that there should not be a time in your lives where the words of God are not off of your lips into your children's ear. It doesn't matter what you're doing in life. There are always moments of teachability where you can point your kids back to the glory of who God is. Teach them consistently. Not only teach them convincingly or consistently, but teach them conspicuously. Verse 8, bind them as a sign on your hand and let, it, and let it be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Very clearly, all he wants you to do is teach your children clearly. The word of God should be visible for them in your home. Your children should not have to go outside of the home to know who God is. Your children should not have to depend on somebody other than mom or dad to teach them who God is. It should be so before their faces that they get sick of it. Listen, my mom used to put Charles Stanley on at 6.30 in the morning before I went to school, and I hated every second of it. But you know what I can't say? I cannot say that my mom did not teach me the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Parents, let me end with this. Don't let your kids dictate how you teach the word of God to them. You've got to take the initiative, no matter how they feel or how tired they get, to get them before the face of God. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we are grateful to you that we can proclaim that you are a good, good father to us, that we have experienced the goodness, even if we've come from jacked up families, even if we've come from parents who were passive themselves. God, we are children. We belong to a God who is not passive. You confront us in our sin. You love us in the midst of our flaws and our failures. You are faithful to us and you are a friend to us. You care and are concerned with everything that happens in our lives. Father, we can only hope to be like Jesus in the way that we are being like God to our children the way that you are to us. That we would take of your example, that we would be empowered by your spirit. So that the, ne the next generation will not be able to say that they did not know the Lord because of us. Father, we pray that you would do a work in us for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that it was a blessing to you and it was aiding in your life to help you to show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. If this message has been a blessing to you, we want you to consider partnering with us in ministry so that we can maximize what God has called us to do locally, nationally, and internationally. You can go to epiphanyfellowship.org, go under give and consider donating. Thank you. Take care. See you next week.